Hi, and welcome to Faithful Like Children, where the Christian life is lived through the lens of a childlike posture. Come chat with us about everything that has to deal with that and much more. God bless and enjoy this episode. Hey, Hello. Hey. How so, are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing so good. Wonderful. So, hey, guys. Welcome back to another episode of Faithful Like Children. I'm really glad you're here. Today we have a really, really special guest. It's my good friend, Chris, from the Agios podcast. And I'm just so happy that you're here, Chris. I am so happy to be here. Awesome. So how are you doing? Like I said, I am doing so great. The weather is actually decent, which is weird for our Ohio October. But I will take it. It is sunny. The birds are chirping. And I got done doing sidewalk chalk. Yay! Awesome! (laughs) All right, so if you guys have known, we, Chris and I wanted to do a episode together for a, for a pretty long while now, and we got your guys's like input about what to exactly talk about, um, just because we had like two completely different um, things to talk about and we didn't know which one to do. And so this was the topic that was selected first. Sorry for those that voted for sin and the souls. We will cover that sometime eventually. Absolutely. It's a really good topic. It's another really good topic. So just hang on. But Chris, for those of you that maybe not really are living under a rock, but for those (laughs) that might be a little bit confused about what we're exactly going to be talking about today, why don't you give it you know okay um all right so the so we're talking about as jp2 puts it two lungs in one church so so there's the catholic church right and people often associate the catholic church with the roman catholic church which Mm -hmm. you know is the majority of the church however that only makes up one right of the other 23, what we call Eastern Catholic churches, right? And so what are they? Well, in the years 451 and 1054, there were two major schisms in the Catholic church, and that led to the formation of the Oriental and Eastern Orthodox Eastern Orthodox churches, respectively. And then the Eastern Catholic churches are just those churches that were brought back into the Catholic church. And so what's the difference? Well, we kind of do things differently. Um, because during the many years of the split, the churches all developed separately and thus formed a distinct characteristic. Like mm-hmm. I said, there are 23 Eastern Catholic churches and then the one Western church, which is the Roman Catholic church, and each has their own charisms and distinctions. And because of their variety, I will not be able to talk about all of them. And There's too many. I know. There, There's there so really many. is. Um like, I'm going to only be talking about the Byzantine traditions of the Eastern Catholic Church, but even that has, like, different splits in it, which isn't bad because they develop geographically and culturally, which is just how the church works. Um, mm-hmm. And out of and out of which only five of the 23 rites has developed, only five of those rites are, quote-unquote, Byzantine. But when we say Eastern Catholics, that's what we usually refer to, just how when we say Roman Catholic, or when we say Catholic, you think Roman Catholic. Right. Because there are kind of differences between the two, but... There definitely are. 
Yeah, there definitely are. But the thing is, is that it's so beautiful that like there's different traditions and different ways to do different things. Absolutely. Um, when it comes to the church and it just gives you like a sense of wonder and awe about mm-hmm. like the different things. And you might be kind of thinking to yourself, see, Lee, this is a top. Is this one of the first episode where you're not going to mention childlike posture in the episode? <laughs> Well, you are oh so wrong. Oh, let's go. (laughs) (laughs) I like to kind of think of um, celebrating the different um, liturgies or or at least sacraments. At at least that's how I, as a Roman Catholic, you know, say, you know, say the different sacraments. But I know that in the that in the Eastern church, it's mysteries, right? Chris? Yes, correct. All right, cool. Um, but basically, I like to kind of think of it as like, you know how families have different traditions and different ways of how to celebrate certain mm-hmm. holidays? So like Christmas, yeah. Easter, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I kind of like to think of, when it comes to having a childlike posture, like you have that wonder and awe of like the different traditions that are hap- that are happening. Oh, totally. And I just think that that's like such a beautiful thing to remember because we often can think about the different, um, the different um, traditions of the East and the West. And we can sometimes think like oh well like how they do stuff is like weird like I don't like that no it's weird it's fine (laughs) (laughs) we're all weird here amen it's organized catholic chaos hold up I'm quoting you on that (laughs) (laughs) I didn't originally say that it was one of my friends from totally like a okay they're not wrong though (laughs) that's true though right (laughs) That is really true. Um, I like to think about it as the many parts, one body, especially. Yes. There are many, many parts. There's 24 of them. 23 yeah. of them are on the right side of the body. Wow. Uh, are you <laughs> si- I mean, geographically, yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I just didn't want to have like this whole debate over recording this. Right and wrong or like right and left? I was think I thought you meant right and wrong. Nope, right and left. <laughs> Good. Good. Because <laughs> they all originate in the Middle East, the Slavic and um, African countries too, which is something I should have mentioned. Yeah. Right. Um, so we kind of talked a little bit about like, you know, like exactly what is the Eastern Catholic Church so we can get like a few like good ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe talk about like a lot of the different traditions like of the east and the west and i know that that's like a whole other thing to talk Mm -hmm. about because there's Mm -hmm. a lot yeah so in reference to like the traditions of the east and west from my end on the east um there are a lot of things to talk about um and so, so much so that we have our own seminary to teach us these things. So we don't go to Roman Catholic Seminary. There's Byzantine Catholic Seminary in Pittsburgh. Um, 
And then even still, that takes years to learn and people take multiple PhDs to learn about all the East. Um, so I'm going to um, simplify as much as I can. Um, so to start off, we really like our food and we will find any excuse to eat. Well, I will explain. I swear we're not just fat. There's, there's, there's something behind it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in the Byzantine church, it is, tradition, it is traditional that our church have a gathering hall in which everyone gathers uh, to eat brunch or a light meal after divine liturgy. We call it the agape meal or like love meal. Um, it's because it fosters that whole community aspect and we have a very strong outlook on a family or church community. Um, that's, that's a big part of it. Um, and so we, we focus on, on that and that takes back into our spirituality. We have a lot more of the spirituality that comes home or that brings everyone to church for more reasons. Um, mm -hmm. I think that's something I'll explain later, but after someone has died, another one after, uh, after someone has been dead for 40 days, we celebrate a liturgy in their memorial. And after liturgy, everyone receives bread that was blessed by the priest. It's like the in-between bread of the Eucharist and then regular bread. Um, yeah, in Arabic, we call it uh, Orban or Korban. Um, and um, I, I forget the actual word, but the word for the liturgy in the Syrio Malamar or Syrio Malankar rite, which is not a Byzantine rite, it's another Eastern rite, um, their liturgy, their mass is called um, Holy Korba or something like that, or Holy Korbana, which is, I think, from the reference of the Arabic word for bread. Um, that's awesome yeah or like the holy bread um so yeah everyone receives bread that was blessed i don't exact exactly know why but we do um but the reason why it's 40 days is because it's not part of teaching it's just like some tradition that some people accept it, we believe that the soul remains on earth 40 days after someone has passed and only after the 40 days do they ascend to heaven and so that is why we wait until 40 days to celebrate their death because that's the point that their their soul is taken up. Um, another one is on the Feast of the Transfiguration. Everyone receives grapes, also blessed by the priest. That, again, I don't know why. Things just happen in the Eastern Church. Literally, our rubrics are just like, here you go. You can do it this. It just like, seems this. like there's a reason to celebrate anything. Mm-hmm. Yep. There <laughs> literally is. Um, on Easter, this is not very Byzantine, but it originates in the Byzantine Church. Everyone gets colored eggs, and it's usually red. And there's a story behind this. Um, so the story behind it is that this is in the early age of the church. Mary Magdalene went to an emperor to evangelize the gospel after Jesus had ascended into heaven. And she used an egg to describe the resurrection. The king, mocking her, said that Christ resurrected in so much as that egg was red. Obviously, eggs are white. But at that moment, the egg turned red. And that is why we dye eggs for Easter. Fun fact. Which, which I love that. Like. Mm -hmm. I just love it that Mary Magdalene had like the kind of like the chutzpah to like be like, <laughs> oh yeah, I'm gonna go to this emperor and like kind of like you know teach him about the resurrection. And then the emperor's like, haha, I don't believe it. And then it's like jokes on you. God's really like, ha, I better believe it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, so like I mentioned before, kind of moving on. Um, we have a bigger emphasis on the family and community, which is why all our prayers are structured to be done in a church or in the mini church. And that's what we call a home or a family. Um, in our liturgies and prayers, we always do 
so this is focusing on liturgy, we always do the sign of the cross anytime the Trinity is mentioned in any way. If we like mention the Trinity separately um, in our prayers, sign of the cross is done. Uh, during the, um, for an example, during the creed uh, and the Holy Spirit who uh, proceeds from the Father, actually we don't actually have the proceeds from the Father and the Son because again, that's another development that we had when we were Orthodox and the church just let us keep that part. So it says the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father, who together with the Father and the Son, at that moment in the creed, we'll do the sign of the cross because the Trinity has been mentioned as a whole. And also the glory be, glory be to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, now and always, until ages of ages, amen. Um, our glory be is different, but hey, the Trinity is mentioned, and so we'll do the sign of the cross at that moment. There's a lot of sign of the crosses. Um, and speaking of the sign of the cross, that is done right to left, not left to right as the Romans will do it. Um, so we begin at the head to symbolize the Father, the Godhead, and then you move down towards your stomach because God, the head, God, the Godhead, uh, sent his son down to earth. So father, head down, down to your stomach, down. Uh, the son then rose to the right hand of the father, which is why we start on that end. And then moving your hand over to the left shoulder, we complete the sign of the cross with the Holy Spirit. And then, That makes so much sense. Right? That um, makes so much more sense. I, I have like in Roman then, Catholic school, I always learned that it was left to right because we always want to end up on the right hand of God. Well, okay. Which also like, makes sense. Yeah, but like... Ours is cooler, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, let's just face it. Um, some usually prevalent in the Middle East, some will add another step where we move our hands from the left shoulder over to our hearts, which symbolize the Holy Spirit descending upon our hearts this time as the paraclete. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Yeah. We, we're very, I like, one of my favorite ways to describe a human being is an incarnational being because we have mm -hmm. so many, like, God was incarnate. He became man. We have the sacraments, which are an outward sign of grace. We need this, like, physical aspect because just the, that's just how we were created. Um, yeah. We have being, we have this very special being that, that, that sh helps us share in God. And so God shares his grace through an aspect of being so the byzantine church really puts that into a very wide like a very specific perspective like our church is covered covered in art mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's awesome yeah i know and i've been to um like inside a byzantine catholic church and i've seen like pictures of them oh, yeah. oh my goodness they're so nice the older ones are magnificent yeah, they're truly awesome. All right, so, Chris, we've kind of been hyping up with the Eastern Catholic Church. Yeah. <laughs> for good reasons. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. But as much as we're hyping it up, there's all these negative assumptions of both the Western side or the Eastern side. Because, mm -hmm. like, some people, they might not like certain traditions to be brought into their church mm -hmm. and you know for kind of like the right reason for a good reason like like I remember when I first went to a Byzantine divine liturgy I wanted to bring my rosary with me and my and my Marian consecration book with me but mm -hmm. I felt like I was good at that I would be looked weirdly upon and so I didn't do that and because of because of negative assumptions that I've mm -hmm. heard of from both sides and 
I was just wondering if you could speak to why these negative assumptions of these two sides, the West and the East, exist. Yeah. Well, so on the East side of things, especially when we have Western traditions coming into our church, that causes us to be a little bit fearful because we really do value our traditions and our history and our culture. Um, So when we see the Latinization of our church, we get a little bit worried. Like I said before, Um, kneeling is the most prevalent one. Like Byzantine churches, we won't kneel because in the Western, in the Western world, um, every single time you were before a king, you would, uh, you would uh, kneel or genuflect. In the Eastern world, culturally, not just spiritually, in in the Eastern world, you would only bow towards the king. And so that developed over many, many years. And that's just part of our culture. And so we get worried when that westernization comes in because we want to keep that culture but moving on i think the negative assumptions that arise between the eastern and the western catholics are not because or are because they don't really understand uh what each side puts its emphasis on and we put emphasis on different things and thus we express our theology a little bit differently so a very basic and subtle example is the mass or divine liturgy in our case For Roman Catholics, when you go to Mass, you focus heavily on the crucifixion and the death of Jesus. But when you go to Divine Liturgy, we put a great emphasis on the resurrection. As a matter of fact, Mm -hmm. every Sunday is treated as a mini Easter in the Byzantine Church. So you know how the Roman Catholic Church are not allowed to celebrate the Mass on Good Friday? Yeah. For Byzantine Catholics, that's the rule for all of Lent. Because we can't rejoice in the resurrection of Jesus while he's suffering um, for those 40 days except on Sundays, because like I said, it's viewed as a mini Easter. Hmm. Um, And another thing is that it's very off-putting. You know how when you go to a cultural festival, cultural festival or a very ethnic home, you kind of feel out of place as someone who is not of that culture. It's a similar thing here. Each rite of the Catholic church is distinct because it developed in a different geographical location, different cultures and languages. So the church is not just divine, but both human and divine, since it is through the church that man can reach God, and it is through the church that heaven comes down to earth. Because of this culture, cultural influence, the traditions of the church um, is not the same all throughout. And so this is the same for the Roman Catholic Church. In the Roman Catholic Church, you kneel, like I said before, during a consecration. Um, in the Byzantine Church, you bow profoundly. And then as I mentioned before, it's because of the traditions that developed there. Um, um, in the Arabic tradition, if you cross your legs and you have your foot facing someone um, while you're sitting down, that's considered extremely rude. Things like that, little smaller things are that are off-putting because we're very cultural. While the Roman Catholic Church has expanded so profoundly that it's enveloped many cultures and can withhold all of them, the Byzantine rites can't really do that. Right. I really find that like really, really interesting too. Mm-hmm. It's really, really interesting. So we kind of talked about um, the kind of like the negative things about or like the negative assumptions that both sides kind of have towards each other. But we're going to probably focus on the bit more positive things, which is actually learning about the both about both different like sides of of it um so first off how are they alike 
So obviously the church is universal. And so all the churches have commonalities, but are simply expressed in different ways. So we have all the basic structures of the Roman Catholic Church. Um, so just like the Roman Catholic Church, we have all the sacraments, liturgy of the hours. Uh, we have a focus on fasting. Our beliefs about Mary and the natures of Christ are very similar. And then we also have a very, very strong centrality of the mass, or as we call it, divine liturgy. That's awesome. Um, so now for the for the question that's like where not only you guys listening are going to learn a lot, but also I'm going to learn a lot <laughs> because I had no idea about like half the stuff. So prepare, Chris, just be prepared for questions. If you want to button at any time, please go ahead. Perfect. Um, so how are they different? All right. Buckle your seatbelts. This is going to be a ride. Um, so I'm going to go through everything that I mentioned previously about how they're alike and then say why they're different, which is really ironic. Um, so like I said, there's, there's foundations, but something's different. So primarily, we draw a lot of our theology from the fathers of the early church, like St. John Chrysostom and St. Anthony the Great. Um, but like I said, we share those commonalities as, a Roman, as the Roman rite, but simply express them in different ways. So let's go through the sacraments. All the sacraments are the same although we call them mysteries instead, since that is what they are, a mystery. We don't understand how the grace flows through it. We don't understand like transubstantiation, how our sins are forgiven. We know that happens, but we don't know how. Let's start with First Communion. That makes um, sense. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, you're good. You're good. Well, actually, let's start with baptism. First Communion, confirmation, are done at the same time as baptism, as I believe I mentioned before. Mm -hmm. um, and so in baptism, we are... Uh, we use full immersion. So instead of like dropping some water on the baby's head, um, which is called effusion, we take the baby and we dunk it into a big tub. <laughs> the baby goes for a literal swim. Um, so the baptismal font is in a section of the church called the Northex, which properly is not part of the church. You know how when you enter into a church, um, you enter into this room and then there's another set of doors leading into what we call the nave? Yeah. So that part is called the narthex. It's not technically a part of the church. Um, and it symbolizes the world and the sin that we are born into. And that's why the baptismal font is outside there. Because the baby not being baptized is not part of the church yet. He's still, he or she is techni technically still a part of the world. Um, mm. And it's also the, the structure of the church, uh, especially in Byzantine churches, is done to look like the early Jewish temple, the first Jewish temple, where you had three different layers. You had the um, outer court, which is that narthex. You have the inner court, which is the nave, um, which is where everyone will sit. Um, and then you also have the Holy of Holies, which is only where the high priest could enter once a year for only a little bit. And that's where we keep the tabernacle. It's behind a wall of icon screens. Um, a wall of It's an icon screen. with It's just a wall of icons that sep not separates. Um, but does look like it separates the people from the altar when in reality it just symbolizes um, the connection of heaven and earth between the altar and the people where Christ resides and where we reside. Um, mm -hmm. I could talk forever about this because I love the topic of Byzantine architecture. Um, <laughs> Another episode probably? Possibly or multiple episodes. Um, but going on to the Eucharist, we do it a little bit differently. Again, 
we receive uh, leavened bread, which so we Roman Catholics will use the thin, un, no yeast bread. We use like actual bread, um, and it's usually soaked in wine. And in most Byzantine churches, the faithful will receive the Eucharist on a spoon. So you put a bunch of chunks of Christ's body into his blood, use a spoon to fish it out, and you drop it into the mouth. Mm-hmm. And um, we do we use leavened bread to symbolize um, that Jesus rose from the dead, just as the bread rises in the oven. That's awesome. Amen. <laughs> now, I, it's al- I also just love when it comes for, you know, like Holy Communion, mm-hmm. um, when you receive, like you also like say your name. That is part of a formula, yeah. Which I personally love because, and then the, and then I know that like once you say your name, like the priest will like pray a prayer over you. Mm-hmm. like using your name and i just think that that's like the coolest thing ever yeah obviously the prayer will change very insignificantly according to the right but the main one is for example a uh, servant or handmaid of god seely receive the body and blood of our lord and savior jesus christ for the remission of sins and for eternal life amen and you just walk away <laughs> yeah um so yeah it is a really very personable part because our god is an intimate god and so using your name is such a beautiful joining of you and your lover Mm-hmm. Um, but going on to the next sacrament, which is confession, um, same thing, same idea of it, but it's usually done a little bit differently. It's usually will be done, uh, in front of an icon of Jesus Christ, not in a confessional because we don't do that. And the early church never did actually, um, confession used to be done a little bit more publicly, which got a little bit dangerous. So then we moved it to more private things. Um, so mm-hmm. additionally, the priest absolves you by putting his stole, or what we call a, the epitrachulian, um, over your head, and he prays for God's mercy over you. Um, so you'll bow down, uh, almost kissing the icon of Christ, and he'll pray over you, which is like super, like if you look at imagery of it, it is really, really beautiful to look I've at. I've seen pictures of it. I'm mm-hmm. like, wow. It is really nice. Um, now, now, like a quick question. Yeah. So like you, so like, so when it comes to like for the actual formula of, you know, the, of like the steps for confession in the Byzantine Catholic, right. Mm-hmm. Um, is it pretty much the same as it is in the Roman, right. Or is it different? Yeah. So just like our um, liturgy where the rubric for the people is not always very structured. Mostly it's just the rubric for the priests um, the rubric for our confessions aren't necessarily as structured either. You'll go up, this is the very traditional version of confession, not every confession is the same depending on the priest, but for the very traditional one, you'll go up, you'll touch the ground and do the sign of the cross three times before the icon of Christ, um, and then you'll just start confessing your sins, and then the priest will absolve you. That's it. Um, I remember I was visiting a Mel- uh, Melkite Byzantine church, in Washington, D.C., and we watched my dad do Byzantine confession for the first time off in the corner, and my mom was, like, taking pictures, just like, look, look, my husband's doing confession. <laughs> it was really funny. Uh, so, yeah. So, uh, so, like, counsel and a penance, they're not, that's not a thing in the Byzantine rite, or? Again, it depends. In the Roman rite, part of it, um, I've been to many priests that are, like, great, here's your penance, I absolve you of your sins, um, so in total honesty, crazy, 
but I actually haven't been to a Byzantine confession before just because my confessor Roman Catholic and um, my I haven't had a good relationship with priests just yet to make them my confessor, which is another thing. We focus on having a confessor, having a priest that you always go to for confession. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. That's, in- that's interesting because I feel like there's also like, kind of like that focus also in the western right too yeah not i mean not always but like mm-hmm. it is still a kind of a thing um i've definitely heard of people having um every a lot of people have a spiritual director but for byzantine churches we like if you go to the bulletin you won't necessarily see confession times because you have to make an appointment usually okay that's the thing yeah which i think is also like one of the most humbling things about it too is that because like it's because you know you're literally like asking for god's mercy Mm -hmm. like before you ask for god's mercy exactly yeah so i think that's just like such a beautiful and humbling thing Mm -hmm. um so one of the last actually no never mind i skipped one um skip two marriage (laughs) um that is actually i was just at a wedding um today's friday so five to six days ago um and it was a and in the byzantine church we don't call it marriage we call it the mystery because in the ceremony the bride and the groom get to wear crowns as symbol of the royal nature of marriage and their authority over the family that is given to them by god so the crowns are joined with a piece of fabric that symbolizes their unity since, you know, God says that um, in marriage, we become one. one. Um, and so that's, that symbolizes their mar- their merging into one flesh and one soul. By tradition, which is my specific Byzantine rite, which is like the Byzantine rites of the Byzantine rite of the Middle East. Um, when one of the spouses dies, so the couple gets to keep their crown, but when that fabric is cut and the crown is placed on the person's head for their burial. That's beautiful. Yeah, it's really sad. That is sad, though, but, mm-hmm. like, it's also beautiful. It really is. But, yeah, in their in this ceremony, um, they're becoming uh, married and thus are going to have children eventually, and they become rulers of their household. The Byzantine ch- Church puts a very specific emphasis on, like, the royal kingship of the parents over their children. Wow. Um, so, yeah, that's why we wear our crowns. Um, and it's really ironic that um, uh, w- the reading is Ephesians 5, which is woman be subject to your husbands and all that. It's just really weird. Um, and I had to read that for the wedding. But there's more to it. Um, this is a shameless plug for my podcast, which is uh, scriptural evidence for women's dignity that talks about that. I know. I started listening to it. It was. It's so good. It's really good. It's really good. Yeah. All right, so now we had the marriage of um, man and woman. What about man and God? Holy orders. Um, but what so, about confirmation? Well, confirmation, I'll get to it. Like I said, um, it, it's very similar to baptism. It's joined with baptism. Okay. Okay, so for holy orders, the deacons are processed into the church, and they are announced to the bishop for their ordination by another deacon. Um, so the soon-to-be priest is altar three times in the middle of the liturgy um and he'll kiss each corner of the altar 
and then coming to the bishop who is sitting in front of the altar, he'll kiss his hand and then continue for the other two times. Um, and, and this is actually what happens to babies after their baptism. Um, like I said, when a baby is baptized, it is in the narthex of the church, which is symbolizes the world outside. But then they're processed into the church by the priest and taken around the altar three times. And so, and that last time, the deacon will sit and kneel before the bishop in front of the altar. And then the bishop facing the altar will stand and place their, um, I forget what it's called. It's not a stakarion, which is, it's not the stole. It's a different uh, Episcopal um, clothing that we use. It's an outward one. You often see the icon of Christ the High Priest. Um, but anyways, he, it will. It looks like a stole um, and he'll take it and he'll place it in his head. And after a prayer, that priest is ordained and is dressed with his priestly vestments before the whole congregation. And every single time, every single time before he is um, given a certain priestly vestment, like the cuffs that we wear or the um, chasuble or the stigarian or the epitrochilian, um, or if he's a pastor, the epigonation, the, the bishop or the patriarch, if you're a really popular dude, will uh, sing loudly. He is worthy. And, the, and while he's being dressed, um, the, the congregation, so repeat oxios, 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 or he is worthy, he is worthy, he is worthy. Um, and after each garment is placed on him, which wow. is really cool. That is awesome. Now, I know that for like the sacrament of holy orders, um, now it is different whether you're being ordained a bishop or a priest or a deacon, but typically what happens is that... Um, the deacons or is that like any you know the priest or whoever is about to be ordained they you know they like lie prostrate on the ground um we don't necessarily see that as often that is done with the priest kneeling before the altar placing his head on the altar um, while the bishop will pray for him we don't have that process of prostration necessarily However, um, that is sort of a lie because I'll explain. Um, while the deacon is entering into the church to be ordained by the, um, with the other deacon, um, there is three points along the procession in that he will lie down on the ground, say a quick prayer, stand up and do that another two times. So it's not the prostration where they're just there for a couple minutes, but it's a quick prostration. Would, okay. like flat on the floor um and i actually will mention something um that i totally forgot to say which is the orders for the byzantine church is our priests can be married um yep yeah so that's that's how it was in the early church and that changed by the authority of the church um peter um so it is it is very important to say that it become a priest but a priest can't get married so what I'm saying right. is like, just like the, um, they have to be married before they're ordained. Um, and according to the right, sometimes the bishop will restrict a certain amount of time before they can be ordained after becoming a married man. So in my church, usually it's, you get married, you have to wait five years and then you can get. That um, makes sense. Yeah, it does. Because obviously 
becoming the father of a family, you should probably figure that out before becoming a priest and becoming the father yes. of so many more. Right. Um, and then, so confirmation, which is what I'm going to leave off on for the sacraments. Um, like I said before, confirmation is done in union, union with baptism and which brings children into full communion with the church immediately. Um, so we don't have confirmation or first communion as the Roman Catholic does, as the Roman Catholic Church does, but um, we do have first reconciliation, which is confession and all that. And um, when does that typically, is that typically like around the age of reason? Mm-hmm, seven years old, just like the Roman Catholic Church. Okay. And then, and then a quick question about confirmation. Yep. Do like your parents like choose like a confirmation name for you or? So that is really uh, another interesting one. Again, it's cultural. Um, so usually how it works in some Byzantine churches is we'll be given, yes, a baptismal name. Um, sometimes it's if you don't have a Christian name, you'll take a Christian name. For some reason, my name is Christopher. Um, my parents didn't know this rule. So my baptismal name is Anthony, just because my parents wanted to name me Anthony. Um, so um, you oftentimes you will be given a baptismal name as we call it okay and so another difference is this isn't that that isn't that big of a deal but liturgy of the hours we call it the divine office we have similar hours just like you guys throughout the day um and we both centralize it on the psalms but obviously the prayers are just a little bit different um we also view the divine office especially or matins which are the morning prayer that is done before divine liturgy continuous with the divine liturgy so vespers done the night before commemorates the fall and death of humanity while orthros will commemorate the death of christ and our salvation and then what once that is complete and the entirety of salvation history is completed through those prayers we enter into divine liturgy where we celebrate all this in the resurrection of christ that's this is the awesome. reason why. Yeah, I know, right? It is so cool when I learned it's this. It's so cool. What my the mouth heck? was a gap. It was so cool. But that's why our readings in the Divine Liturgy never include readings from the Old Testament because the Old Testament was already used the night before in Vespers. Hmm. So yeah, it's always taken from Paul. Um, and so fasting is another thing. It's That is so important in the Byzantine. Um, we have similar um, fasts but so we don't have that strong criteria of you need to have one regular meal and two don't add up to a normal meal. Um, we That's just confusing have, for me. Yeah, it, it does. And constant like watching of your meal, which I guess it makes you very conscious about that, which is good. Um, we just don't eat meat on Fridays um, and Wednesdays, which is, yeah, every, every single week don't eat wheat on Wednesdays and Fridays. That's how we do it usually. Um, and so, but for Lent, we don't eat meat or dairy the whole time. And we start fasting a little bit earlier. We start uh, about one or two weeks early. And that's because we start on a Sunday um, Lent because we don't have Ash Wednesday. Um, mm-hmm. So one week prior to the Sunday, the first Sunday of Lent, our first Sunday of Lent, um, is you stop eating meat. And then the first, technically the first Sunday of Lent, you stop eating dairy. And um, we abstain from that all of Lent. And so, yeah, it 
it kind of sucks um because you're just eating beans all day yeah <laughs> this doesn't sound fun no it doesn't um but we love my mom and her cooking she ends up doing some actually really cool stuff awesome. so yeah um but we also have more fasting periods as well i currently have the fasting calendar next to me hanging up um, just so I know when to fast and sometimes when not to fast because I accidentally because I've accidentally fasted like an entire week when I'm not supposed to which was really annoying um, but we have like the apostles fast Jonas fast and the fast of Mary in August which is done before the um, or mission as we call it and then I, this one's going to be fun and I might be um, called a heretic for this are you ready okay all right, beliefs of Mary and the natures of Christ. So, we affirm, just like the Roman Catholic Church, the dual nature and the unipersonhood of Jesus. We also affirm that Mary was sinless, although we don't technically believe in the same concept of original sin. Well, um, yeah, because like that, well, it would make sense because like that whole, um, the whole, like, like, you know, the Immaculate Conception and, you know, the document, I totally, I don't know exactly like when it came out, but it came out like in the 1850s. It was the um, Ex Cathedra doctrine. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. that it would, yeah, that one. So, and that came out like, like, pre- like it was a more recent one if you. Oh, yeah consider you know the 2000 year history you know of (laughs) the church yeah you're right um but like like i said before we take a lot of our theology from the patristic fathers the early church fathers um usually they're orthodox or considered to be orthodox but that was before the split um but this is because the the byzantine church doesn't express the idea of original sin as the roman church does we believe that we are born into sin as a result of adam but this is where we differ. We don't believe that we share in this guilt and thus we don't have original sin. Um, so the concept of original sin oftentimes will trace its origin back to Romans 5.12, which says, therefore, just as through one person sin entered the world and through sin, death, and thus death came to all in as much sinned. So the Byzantine Catholic Church translate this a little bit differently. Yes, sin entered the world, but where it says, in so much as all sinned, we do not take it to mean because of the sin of Adam, but because of the consequences of sin, which is death. Because of death and the threat of separation from God, we always turn to worldly pleasures, which is sin. It's kind of been ingrained into our nature in a, in a way. We call it ancestral sin, which is the tendency to sin because we are humans. Um, Mary wasn't uh saved from ancestral sin but by the grace of god she didn't sin sin because free will but she didn't she was perfect in that sense Hmm. Mm -hmm. and then yeah i do love mary we have a very i will i will i want to say this because i don't want people to think that we don't love mary we have a very, very strong devotion to Mary in the Byzantine Church. We have whole liturgies set up aside for her, and a you lot do. of like, yeah, and the amount mm-hmm. of hymns that are dedicated to Mary, um, mm-hmm. whom, and whom, uh, in the Eastern Church you call her the Theotokos, right? Yep. Um, 
just the amount of, just like the hymns that you have like towards her like you know to honor her it's so ah, i just love it so much yeah right after the consecration we have a whole hymn for her that's that's set aside and it's a really pretty hymn and i love it um we have services called uh periclesis which is usually done with lent on fridays <coughs> excuse me where it's all done for mary or acathists which are also done for mary excuse me but yeah strong devotion to her and we also like link her all the time with um the byzantine church and the Roman catholic church has adopted this we'll say that uh the the burning bush at moses was a prefigurement to mary because the burning bush was not consumed by the fire neither was mary's virginity in her um conception of christ and so mm -hmm. if you look at icons of moses talking to the bush it's always Mary and Jesus in the bush, which is really cool. Um, That's awesome. It truly is. Um, but I want to focus now on the center of our faith, the Roman Catholics and the Byzantines, which is mass or divine liturgy. And I've been keep on swapping back and forth. Um, so divine liturgy. So we obviously see Sundays as a holy day. Like I said, a new Easter every single time set aside for God in which we go to church. Now, divine liturgy is our version of the Roman Catholic mass, but we call it divine liturgy, not and not mass, because there is no ite misa est at the end, which means in Latin, go forth, the mass is ended. Also, there is a stronger emphasis on the participation in liturgy, which is why it's called liturgy, because it comes from the Greek word, which means work of the people. There was a stronger sense of a conversation between the priest and the people and God. The priest also pieces away from the people, but turns around very frequently to bless us. Um, so there's that aspect of it. And like I said, the church is built a little bit more differently and a lot more symbolically. Um, and actually, both the Roman Catholic Church and the Byzantine Church developed with a similar structural importance. Um, you'll see very old Roman Catholic churches having their Byzantine uh, or sorry, baptismal font outside in the narthex because of the same reasons. Um, all churches should be facing the east because that's where the sun comes up. That's where the light comes from. Um, and so we face the, the rising sun as we face in hope for the rising sun, S-O-N, at the end of time. Mm -hmm. um, and then different prayers. And I found so many spiritual fruits from the prayers of the Byzantine church. Um, so technically, we don't have the Hail Mary in our tradition, nor do we have the Rosary. Like I said, this tradition during a very tense separation of the Orthodox Catholics. And so we just never adopted the Rosary, although you'll find many Byzantine churches that do say the Rosary before Divine Liturgy. Um, instead, we have another repetitious prayer, um, and that's called, very simply, the Jesus Prayer. Um, and it goes, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner, over and over and over again. And although it's very repetitious and tedious, I have found so much spiritual fruit from it. And I, it's one of my favorite prayers. I love, um, I even love that prayer. Like, even, mm -hmm. like, I even use that as my act of contrition sometimes. There you go. For confession. It has everything in it, actually. It's, so you affirm the divinity of Jesus, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God. His is part of the Trinity. Um, 
it, it has everything. And then have mercy on me, a sinner. You're asking God to have mercy, and you're also being humble enough to call yourself a sinner in the presence. Truly mm-hmm. beautiful. Um, and so we also use it. So again, you have the ro- you have the Hail Mary and you have the Rosary. We have the Jesus Prayer and then we have the Prayer Rope, which is in English. In Greek, it's called the Chotki, and in the Komboskini. Actually, I think I mixed that up. It's the other way around. Greek is Komboskini and Russian is Chotki. Um, and so it's a series of knots that you keep track of the Jesus Prayer. There's of times that you pray the Jesus prayer, but the average prayer up is about a hundred knots. And so the story about its origin actually comes from St. Anthony of Egypt, um, who's attributed with creating the prayer rope. In his hermitage, he was trying to create a prayer rope to pray with, but every single time that he would tie a knot, the devil would appear and untie it. One time, an angel appeared to him and then taught him how to tie an quote-unquote untieable knot. And that is the same one that we use today. And that is knot or the angelic knot. Um, in this knot, there are actually seven intersecting crosses. It's a very complicated one, and you have to, like, use both hands and then, like, all your fingers to do it, and then it takes about two minutes per knot, but it's really fun. Um, sometimes. What my school sometimes. is actually doing... Hmm? Sometimes. Sometimes. Um, my school is actually going to do a um, uh, Byzantine prayer tutorial class um hopefully sometime next month which will be fun (coughs) that does seem like fun yeah um that was a lot um so we talked about how we wanted to find like the unity of the churches and i'm just like really talked about the distinctions um do you have any um no not really all right i did such a good job Wow, you're high-fiving <laughs> yourself. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so, you know, we talked about all of, like, the beauty and everything behind, you know, both sides of the church. Um, So, Chris, I kind of want to hear, like, kind of like your perspective, and then I'll give mine about, you know, the opposite side, like, for me. But has there been a time where you have experienced the beauty of the other lung of the church. Absolutely. Um, I remember when COVID hit, I was in virtual desolation. And ironically, after some time on Catholic social media, I found out about the traditional Latin mass, which is called the TLM. Um, And I learned about the rich tradition of the Western church, because at that time I like really hated, not hated, but I didn't like the Eastern church because I didn't understand much about it. And so I would try to convince my parents to go to a Roman Catholic mass instead because they were shorter and I understood it because it was in English, whereas divine liturgy is dependent on the community um, of the church. And so since my community was Arab, a lot of it was in Arabic. But anyways, um, I started attending the TLM and I fell in love with it because it was so pretty. Um, and actually, I started serving, which is what kept me in the TLM because I started to learn more and more about its symbolism and tradition, um, which is where it's like a very big connection and unity between the divine liturgy and the Roman Catholic. That unity, that symbolism, tradition, um, they're very similar um, in a very general aspect. So like mm-hmm. I said, I, I started 
going, attending TLM as often as I could. Um, but actually, it was what caused a spiritual revival for me and led me back to the Byzantine Divine Liturgy um, because I learned more about the history of the church. Sadly, the church today, in any aspect, in East and in West, and I'm going to say especially in the East, this is a problem, doesn't do a good job at instructing the faithful on the beauty and reverence of the church um, because people just go as a Sunday obligation and they leave. They just, as soon as they receive communion, they're out of there. They don't really understand the meaning behind it. And that's really sad. And the TLM is what helped me understand that there is so much more to the church as a whole than I ever thought. Sure. I mean, I can say that for, um, for, you know, the Byzantine Catholic church. Um, and because, you know, that's the only part of the Eastern church that I've been to. Um, I remember that I heard like a lot of this from uh, Matt Frad's podcast, Pines of Aquinas, with his, um, with the interviews that he did with Father Michael Alaglin and uh, Mother Natalia from Christ the Bridegroom Monastery, and and the both of them just talked about like the beauty and just how amazing the Byzantine Divine Liturgy is. And I was like, all right, I just, you know, I wanted to kind of see like what it was like for myself. It's beautiful. Like, oh my gosh. Like I have no words to describe the beauty of it. Mm-hmm. It's just like so good. Um, and the funny thing too, is that the same day that I went to the Byzantine Divine Liturgy, I also ended up lecturing at, um, the life teen mass at my home parish Whoa. which is which uh, it has more contemporary stuff going on so it was a <laughs> huge kind it was a huge shift um as to what you know was happening and so it gave and it but then I started to realize like I love the more traditional kind of stuff a bit more um just because it allows me to be more engaged and I feel like I was and I was like completely engaged when it came to the Byzantine Divine Liturgy because I feel like it engages all the senses oh 100% and that's the thing about like the TLM and Divine Liturgy is that its roots are so far deep in the church that you can never grasp the true the true like depth and meaning of everything um I have a whole book right now in front of me on commentary on divine liturgy and this is just one of many many books mm-hmm. so yeah it's awesome. it's truly amazing awesome um anything else that you want to say um i don't think so all right talked a lot about the divine liturgy and any more would just fall into chaos <laughs> organized catholic chaos yep all right, do you, do you want to end with a quick prayer? Sure. Do you mind if I use a Byzantine prayer? Go ahead. All right. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Heavenly King, consoler of the spirit of truth, present in all places and filling all things, the treasury of blessing and the giver of life, come and dwell in us, cleanse us of all stain, and save our souls, O good one. 
Holy God, Holy Mighty One, Holy Immortal One, have mercy on us. Holy God, Holy Mighty One, Holy Immortal One, have mercy on us. Agios Otheos, Agios Iskidos, Agios Athanatos, Eleison Imas. Amen. Amen. In your Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, guys, thank you so much for tuning into this episode. Thank you, Chris, for doing this episode with me. This was awesome. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Of course. So if you guys want to listen to any more um, episodes, feel free to do that. Also, make sure that you follow Faithful Like Children at FLC underscore podcast to hear a bit more of any updates that might be coming up. And also, uh, over on the Agios podcast, I did an episode with Chris about childlike posture. Y'all know that I lo- that I talk about that like nobody's business. <laughs> so feel free to pick feel free when that comes out please check it out it's going to be great um in the meantime god bless guys and i hope to i hope that you know this conversation stirred some things in you and that your life is now more fruitful because of it all right god bless guys god bless